Please turn with me in Scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Continuing where we left off this morning, verse 13. Our text will be verses 13 through 26. And when they, that's the apostles, when they had entered and that's the city of Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry." Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and this is a quote then from Psalm 69, may his camp become desolate and let their be no one to dwell in it. And then from Psalm 109, let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." That's as far as we'll go this afternoon. In response to the preaching, we'll sing two hymns, back-to-back, hymn 21 and hymn 22, and I think you'll be able to see the relevance when you're singing the lyrics after you've heard the sermon. So hymn 21 and hymn 22. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw this morning that the ascension of Jesus was much more than just a return back home to the way things were before. It was God the Father crowning His only begotten Son as High King at His right hand. He did that in order to honor Him on account of the victory He won on the cross, 
and which he confirmed in his resurrection. So that crowning of Jesus was a game-changing moment. And Pentecost Day, we hope to get to that in two Sundays, that will make very clear just how much of a game-changer it is. For the Lord Jesus receives all power and authority, and with that power He enables and even empowers His people to do His ongoing work, church-gathering, kingdom-building work here on the earth. So after witnessing this exaltation of Christ, the apostles, they return to Jerusalem. They're filled with great joy, and they're filled with great expectation. Well, how anticlimactic then must our text appear to readers of Acts like ourselves? We know that Jesus ascended into heaven on day 40 after His resurrection, and we also know that He poured out His Spirit on day 50, Pentecost Day. And from that moment, incredible things start happening, but what are we to make of this passage, our text this afternoon? It seems so uneventful, so low-key. We might even ask, is this even relevant? The inspired Luke gives us a tremendous amount of detail about Judas, about his death, and about replacing Judas. I mean, there's more detail here than about the ascension itself. And he mentions the names of the two candidates that were put forward to, to produce uh, the new apostle. Judas uh, was going to be replaced either by Matthias or by a fellow named Joseph. Never heard of those two men. And guess what? After this chapter, we never hear about them again. Particularly, we might have expected to hear of Matthias, who's the replacement apostle, the new apostle, but his name literally never comes up in the rest of the Bible. So with all of this excitement of Ascension Day and all the great things that Jesus was going to do on Pentecost and was expected to do, why does the Holy Spirit direct our attention to this grisly story of Judas' betrayal and death? And why bother replacing Judas? I mean, there's already 11 witnesses. Do we need more? Is a 12th witness to the resurrection really going to make a difference compared to 11 witnesses? You know, a little bit later in the book of Acts, James, one of the apostles, is killed by Herod. And at that time, there's no effort to replace James as an apostle. So, why is it so important to replace one apostle at this point in history? Well, we hope to see together that the ascended Lord, who's now on His throne, is already in our text hard at work restoring the kingdom to Israel. But before the kingdom can be built, to be built up and gathered in, before the Holy Spirit can go forth... The foundation has to be repaired. That's what's going on here. As I preach to you this word of the Lord, the Lord repairs the foundation of His renewed Israel. The Lord repairs the foundation of His renewed Israel. 
we're going to see the downfall of a disciple and the restoration of the twelve. In our text, then, we get our first glimpse of the disciples after Jesus physically has gone away from them, is no longer in their midst. And we get a picture there in verses 13 and 14 of what's left, you could say, of Jesus' earthly ministry. You might recall that up until the last days before His crucifixion, Jesus was a very popular preacher, also with the people in Jerusalem. Vast crowds used to follow Jesus everywhere. They would support Him. And you recall that last, just a week before His death, as He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds loved it. They cheered. They shouted His praises. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the King, even, they said, who comes in the name of the Lord. At one time, Jesus had thousands of followers, thousands of disciples, but in a matter of days, those so-called disciples had turned their backs on Jesus and eventually shouted for His execution. In fact, one of Jesus' own twelve apostles, hand-picked apostles, led the way in rejecting Jesus, and that in turn led to the crash of so many who thought Jesus was the Messiah. All that's left of the many thousands is the eleven apostles, says Luke, plus a few women and some of Jesus' family members, 120 in all. We've gone from tens of thousands cheering crowds in Jerusalem, the capital, to 120 mostly acquaintances from Galilee. Not a very promising beginning to the reign of King Jesus, wouldn't you say? It doesn't look like much from a human perspective. And yet, there is more than meets the eye here. For Luke tells us a few details in verse 14. He starts with the women. The the apostles were together with uh, the women, he says, first of all. Which women? He doesn't name them here in our text because he's already named them earlier in his gospel. A couple of times, starting in chapter 8, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, among many others, who actually at that time had traveled from Galilee with Jesus and the twelve. And I quote from Luke 8, they provided for the apostles and for the Lord out of their means. It was these same women who Luke tells us later observed the tomb as as Jesus' body was put in there, and they prepared spices for Jesus' body. That's Luke 23. So this this group of women was well known to the apostles… They came to believe in the resurrection, and they had remained faithful to Jesus. When others had scattered, they stuck around. That's in in itself encouraging, wouldn't you say? Despite all the threats from the authorities, despite all the negative press in the public around Jesus, this who'd been crucified then, these sisters, they stayed loyal to Christ. 
And so did Jesus' mother, whom Luke mentions by name. We haven't heard of Mary, the mother of Jesus, for quite some time, in Luke's gospel at least. We know from John's gospel that she was there at the cross. And how Mary's heart must have been torn in two to see her son hanging on the cross. But even seeing that horror, she did not lose her trust in God. And you remember what God had said to her some 33 years earlier through the angel Gabriel about this child that she would bear. He will be called great, said Gabriel. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. God had kept faith burning in Mother Mary's heart, and she was there too with the 120, praying to her Savior. That also must have been rather heartwarming for the 11 apostles. And then Luke really surprises us by mentioning another group, small group. He says this, that Jesus' brothers were there praying, meeting with the apostles, Jesus' blood brothers. You remember those men? We took a brief look at them when we started in on the letter of James some months back. You might remember that James himself is one of those blood brothers of Jesus. And there were three others we know of uh, from Matthew's gospel. There's Joseph, there's Simon, and Judas. And the reason we're surprised to see them here at this point is that none of them had believed in Him earlier. The Gospels are quite clear about that. On, on one occasion, uh, they, the family had tried to come and get Jesus. They had thought that Jesus had gone insane. They thought He was crazy. On another occasion, His blood brothers actually ridiculed Him. They made fun of Him, John 7. So, Jesus had been rejected by his family, Mother Mary accepted, but he had been rejected by his siblings, by the people that he grew up with. But lo and behold, 40 days after his resurrection, here they are, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, sons of Mary, and Joseph, they are believers. They have evidently repented and come to faith in Jesus as Lord. Isn't that an awesome work of the ascended Savior? Some of us in the congregation have sons and daughters that think very little or at all about Jesus. Some of us have siblings who have rejected Jesus as Messiah, and think the whole Christianity thing is crazy. They think we belong to a cult. Some do. And when we think of these lost souls who are close to us, it seems so helpless to us, so hopeless, and we feel entirely helpless, but brothers and sisters, with King Jesus on the throne, it's never hopeless. You've got to keep that in view. Keep believing. Keep praying. Jesus' own blood brothers turned around. We've got to keep praying. That indeed is what these 120 believers are doing while they were waiting for King Jesus to send the Spirit. Maybe you notice that in verse 14. 
And it's not just a little prayer here or there, an occasional prayer, but Luke says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Well, there's a couple of things to, to take away. They were of one accord. That means they were of one mind. They were thinking along the same track. They were praying for the same purpose. This little church of 120 is united in their prayers. Are we united, brothers and sisters? Are we united in our thinking and so in our prayers? And this isn't just a one-off deal here in the book of Acts. This is a, a practice that keeps getting highlighted in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, the believers were found to be of one mind, says Luke, chapter 2, verse 46. They were of one mind, fellowshipping together. And in Acts 4, facing opposition, the believers were of one mind, praying to God to defend them against the authorities. Now, this being of one mind cannot mean that they never had differences of opinion. The book of Acts will show that there were differences of opinion on occasion and about matters that were outside of the commandments of God, let's say just purely human matters. But it must mean that these believers, they kept their unity in Christ front and center. They kept King Jesus' command to the church to bear witness to Him and make disciples of all nations, teaching those nations to obey Him, they kept that in the front. Human opinion about matters that were outside of God's Word, they set those to the side, but what they had in Christ and what they were commanded of Christ, that was their guide. Can we do that too, beloved, as congregation? There's lots of opinions about a range of subjects that could come in and tear us apart, but let's leave them at the front door and let our unity in Christ drive us together. So they were of one mind. That's critical. But so is the other part that we learn here. They were devoted to prayer, says Luke. That also comes back time and again in Acts. The church gathers to pray, Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 42, to study the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They were gathering to pray regularly. The apostles also, chapter 6, verse 4, they had the regular habit to pray together. They want to be busy praying together, they say. That's why they needed deacons. They needed to pray and to preach. Paul commands this very thing, using the same verb, he commands it of us in Romans 12, verse 2, we are to be constant in prayer. We are to be devoted to prayer. Do we take that seriously? And again, I want to take a moment to commend the prayer groups and the prayer meetings that have been started in Ancaster Church that have been going on, at least the prayer meetings were up until COVID. The prayer groups are still going on in small number. Prayer, and you understand we're talking about sincere, earnest prayer, not form prayer, but 
prayer that is from the heart and, and based on the Word of God, it's so critical for the health and the well-being and the mission of the church. Why is it so critical? Because when we pray, we are at the throne of God, of our ascended Lord in heaven, and we are asking Him, we are pleading with Him for all that's needed to do His mission on the earth. And it's recognizing that everything depends on the will and on the power of the ascended King. Remember, we're on the earth here. We are His agents to do His bidding. And of ourselves, we have no power. Who can change another person's heart? Who can possibly bring the gospel to the end of the earth? Who can possibly build up a church in human strength? No, this is the, Lord's Je the Lord Jesus' work through us. So we need to depend on Him and ask Him to bless and empower the church it's a recognition that it's the Lord Jesus who directs the course of history. So if we want to be productive servants in His kingdom, if we want uh, our church here in Ancaster to be like the one in Thessalonica, which Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 1's as a model church that shone the light to all around. Everybody knew that the church in Thessalonica was the real deal. If we want to be like that, then we have to be a praying church in private, in public, in twos and threes and fours and fives, whatever the number, in the worship services, outside the worship services, praying for our King to advance His kingdom on earth. We cannot do it on our own. Can't do it. Unless we totally rely on Christ, unless we are in prayer from the heart for all that we need, the danger is real that we will drift away. The danger is present that we will become ex-disciples of Jesus, just like what happened to Judas. Now, before we get to Judas proper, let's just remember that a good number of those disciples in the 120, in that upper room, that they themselves had lost their faith for a time and even had deserted Jesus for a time. Think of the 11 apostles. Think of Peter. We read about his betrayal. It's well known. Peter's about to stand up and speak about Judas. But all 11 of the apostles, they had said, along with Peter, we will never leave you, Lord, not even if we have to die with you. But on that very night, all 11 fled and abandoned their Lord as the soldiers came with Judas. And nobody in the group of 120 had actually believed Jesus' own words, said multiple times throughout his ministry the prophecy that he would be punished by the authorities in Jerusalem and he would die, but he would be raised on the third day. They didn't believe it. Not even the women believed it. They were going to the tomb to prepare his body for, for burial, you recall. They weren't going there to greet him on, on his resurrection. That was a surprise to them. So, 
before we talk about Judas, understand that these 120 individuals, these people were there not as proud believers who had done what Judas failed to do. No, no. These people were there with broken hearts, contrite hearts. They knew that they were no better than Judas. Fully aware were they of their many transgressions, and they understood with great clarity that they had been saved by grace alone, same as you and me. The church, brothers and sisters, is nothing but helpless sinners who've been gathered in by the gracious shepherd and given a new heart and given a new start. We're not better than Judas or Peter or the eleven We're saved by grace alone. That's all we can cling to. But Judas was not saved. And notice how it's Peter standing up to explain what's happened here. The same Peter who had denied Jesus, but the same Peter of whom Jesus said in Luke 22, we read that, that Jesus had prayed for Peter. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Both betrayed their Lord. Both were guilty of a heinous sin. Both are worthy of condemnation. But only one was chosen. Only one was prayed for by Jesus. And only one was commanded to strengthen his brothers after he repented. And that's what Peter begins to do here in our text. And he's going to do that in the coming chapters King Jesus has turned this, this turncoat into a shepherd leader. You see what the Lord can do with, with broken vessels like Peter and the eleven with him? So, beloved, be encouraged. Keep praying for all those straying sheep you're thinking about. For the Lord may yet have mercy on them. The Lord may yet bring a turning in them. And when there is a turning, be ever so gentle with them. Be ever so kind in welcoming them back, in restoring them to their place in the church, because we're all in the same boat. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Only the shepherd has gathered us in. That's why we're here now. You know, for those 120 the betrayal of Judas, that must have left them rattled. I mean, just think about that, right? When you and I hear the name of Judas, we instantly think traitor. We think despicable conspirator. We know what Judas is, and that's what comes to our mind. But the believers who had been with Jesus and the twelve for those three years, they only knew Judas as an upstanding guy. Remember, Judas had one of the highest privileges. He had been called to be one of the twelve apostles. Judas had even been sent out on a short-term mission trip or two by Jesus. We read that earlier in the Gospels. He sent out with the twelve. He sent out with the seventy. So Judas had been a preacher. 
Judas had been a healer. He had cast out demons from people. So he would have been very well regarded. Nobody knew that he was stealing from the kitty. Not until later. Judas was, was one of the esteemed 12 apostles. So when everything went down and they realized what Judas had done, this would have just shocked the community. They must have wondered, how, how could this have happened? Like, how could this have happened to Jesus who picked Judas, who looked to be in control of all that he was doing? How could God let one of the twelve betray his only begotten son? For all those reasons, Peter stands up to explain things. He makes clear that the actions of Judas were not a surprise at all. Verse 6 or 16, he says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, notice just in passing here how the Psalms of David are described as the songs of the Holy Spirit. David is the mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit. And notice that the Spirit in the Psalms tells us about the Messiah. The Spirit in the Psalms doesn't so much give us direct prophecy like you have in the writings of Isaiah or Jeremiah, but in the Psalms there's a type of prophecy called, it's actually called a, a type or, or foreshadowing. So David himself, as a, as a person, in his office as king, he was given by God as a type of Christ, a, a shadow, a picture of what the Messiah would be like and what he would do and what would occur to him. So what happened to David, as we read about it in the Psalms, would happen to the Messiah, only it would happen more completely to the Messiah. And what was said of David or what was said by David would one, one day be said of the Messiah or by the Messiah only more fulsomely. So when you read the Psalms, you often see a description of David suffering at the hands of enemies. Well, so the Messiah would suffer at the hands of enemies. That's actually what Psalm 69 and 109 are all about, the two Psalms quoted there in our text. David was betrayed by a close friend. You remember that? Ahithophel, his close counselor, betrayed him over to his own son Absalom. That's Psalm 41, which we sang. Well, that was a type of foreshadowing. Christ would also be betrayed by a close friend, Judas. The enemies of the Lord, the enemies of the Lord's anointed, they, they would fall under the Lord's curse. That is stated in Psalm 69, 109, but other psalms like Psalm 2, very famous psalm, and many other psalms too. Well, so would the enemies of Jesus, the great anointed of the Lord. They would ultimately come under God's curse. And Judas proved himself to be an enemy of Jesus by betraying him unto death. And so Judas falls or fell under God's curse. That's the significance of Judas 
hanging himself. God had clearly stated in the laws of Moses that a hung person was cursed by God. It was a symbol of being under God's wrath. Judas, one of the apostles, had committed treason. And it's for that reason, not because he he died, because James later died, but it's, it's that betrayal that's at issue here. For that reason, the Lord needed to repair the foundation of His renewed Israel by restoring the complete twelve. For that's the, the bigger picture here. King Jesus is beginning His work of renewing Israel, of gathering in His church, but to do that, He needs the 12 foundation stones in place. A lot of people think that the church begins in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Day. A lot of people think that the church is a new thing, a new entity. In the Old Testament time, God had made the Israelites His people, but now that Israel had rejected uh, God by rejecting the Messiah, God is moving on with Gentiles. King Jesus is going to start a brand new work. Some think Israel, they used to be God's covenant people, but for now, but now it's something called the church, and it all starts on Pentecost. It's all a new project. That's why for a lot of Christians, there's a sharp divide between Old Covenant Israel and the church, a sharp divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament in their Bibles. It's like there's a line, a solid line between the two Testaments. But is there a solid line between the two Testaments? Does God say in Scripture that He's beginning a brand new work on the day of Pentecost? Well, think of what Gabriel announced to Mary. We already heard it. Now listen to it from the point of view of continuity. Gabriel said this, the Lord God will give to the child the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus was going to be king over the house of Jacob. That sounds like the continuation of Israel, not its end, doesn't it? Luke in his gospel also records Mary's song of praise about the coming child. Mary says this, The Lord has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The coming child was fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, to Israel. Even Zechariah, at the birth of his son John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says this, because John was forerunner to the Messiah, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So, 
Jesus did not come here to earth to start a new project, to create some kind of brand new people. No, he came to restore the fallen kingdom of David, the fallen kingdom of God on earth, to restore it to the house of David. Remember, he himself is the son of David. He's here to restore the kingdom to Israel, and then he's here to expand that kingdom to include the Gentiles. That's why Jesus chose 12 apostles in the first place back in Luke 6. He didn't choose 10 men or 14 or 11 or whatever. He chose 12 very deliberately. When we read that passage, you might have noticed that Jesus first went out and prayed. It says there that Jesus prayed all night. Now, I've never prayed all night. Maybe some of you have. But generally speaking, we pray for longer periods of time when there's more riding on what we're praying about, right? You pray with intensity when there's something very serious going on and you are pouring out your heart before the Lord. Maybe somebody's ill. Maybe there's a relationship at stake. Maybe there's something in the church that's amiss and you spend a great deal of time in prayer. Why would Jesus spend a whole night in prayer? The only time in the Gospels He does that, that we're told. A whole night in prayer. And what does He do after He's done praying. He chooses the 12 apostles. This was a critical moment in his ministry. These men were to mirror the number of the patriarchs of the old covenant, the 12 sons of Jacob. These 12 apostles were to be the foundation stone for a renewed church, a renewed people of God, a restored Israel. Do you know if you go ahead to the book of Revelation, that the picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it has foundation stones. And on those foundation stones are inscribed names, the names of the 12 apostles and the names of the 12 patriarchs. It is a single church built from the old and the new covenant people. Even more, Jesus said of these 12 in Luke 22, which we read, verse 28, He said, you 12, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, I'm giving you a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And here's the relevant part. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The apostles were going to be over the twelve tribes of Israel. That's just another way of talking about the church. It's still Israel, but an expanded Israel. Jesus was and is still today renewing the twelve tribes of Israel. And to begin that work, he's got to have 12 witnesses as the 12 foundation stones. It's because G Judas had deserted his calling and his post that another must be chosen in his place, as Scripture had foretold. And the replacement needs to be chosen by the king, just as the other 11 were. 
We might be caught off guard by the casting of lots toward the end of our text, but this was the normal way in Israel in, in the Old Testament times. It was approved by God to, to cast the lot with the understanding that the outcome of the lot was God's decision. So it wasn't gambling, but it was something done in faith. It's also, by the way, the last time we hear of the casting of lots in the Bible. After the Holy Spirit comes and is poured out on the lives of all the believers, later in the book of Acts, when there has to be men chosen to the office of elder or even to the office of deacon, then the Spirit-filled people, they choose directly. They don't cast lots anymore. So there seems to be a change. Just like we're about to do this coming Saturday, the Lord willing, in choosing new elders and deacons, we're not going to cast a lot, but we're each going to cast a vote as the Spirit moves us. The Spirit of God is in us to give us the wisdom for that. But in both cases, whether it's the lot or the choosing by vote, notice who's in charge of the outcome, verse 24 of our text. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. You, Lord, Lord Jesus, they mean. He's the ascended king. You, Lord, and then in, in the, uh, the original, it's an adjective. They say, you are the heart knower. Isn't that a nice phrase? You're the, you're the heart knower. Jesus is the heart knower. Though the lot, or through the lot, King Jesus chose Matthias to serve his church in Jerusalem as apostle. And this Saturday, King Jesus will choose the men he wants to serve in the church in Ancaster. Let's also continue to pray for that. We prayed for it this morning as church. Let's pray for that upcoming vote on Saturday so that we all may rest assured that the outcome is from the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, the Lord, the Lord God, and His anointed King Jesus, they did not cast off Israel, but they are rebuilding Israel from the ruins. After all, Jesus is an Israelite king in heaven. He's the son of David ruling over his people, and, and he's appointed 12 Israelite witnesses as foundation stones for a renewed church. And Jesus has gathered you and me, Gentiles, as far as I know, I don't think there's any Jews in Ancaster. I haven't heard. Doesn't matter. We're all the same, Jews and Gentiles. But gathering us Gentiles into this church of his. It's a wonderful work, isn't it? Jew and Gentile, Israelite and pagan, brought to their knees in repentance and faith by the most powerful, most loving and gracious King who rules the world. He has brought us into His kingdom. Jesus did this from those 
12 stones from the start, starting point of those 12, 12 weak stones, weren't they? From those, that small church of 120. That's how it started, this renewed effort some 2,000 years ago. What do we see of the church today? We see and we hear and we know that the 12 tribes of Israel are being gathered in little congregations and bigger congregations in every land, from every people group, from every tribe and tongue all over the world. We cannot even possibly oversee all the church-gathering work of this ascended Lord. It started with 12 and 120. Now it's innumerable. Isn't that awesome? And it's unstoppable, brothers and sisters. This is the good news of Ascension Day. This is the good news of great and wondrous joy for all of Israel. Amen.